0: my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time a world affairs special. We'll be looking at Afghanistan with a former Canadian ambassador to the country who lays the blame for the resurgence of the Taliban at the door of Imran Khan's government in Pakistan.
1: This is the secret, the dirty secret that Pakistan wants to keep hidden But unfortunately, it keeps coming out, thanks to social media, thanks to courageous and brave Afghans, and thanks to a lot of uh, goodwill that has been built up over decades around the world in all the countries that played a role in trying to put Afghanistan back on a peaceful path. Plus
0: Belarus, where President Lukashenko's repression of his people has become ever more brutal.
2: I think the point of no return has been passed and people just cannot accept Lukashenko anymore. And that's what Lukashenko feels. He understands that, you know, for them, he's, he's gone.
0: All that to come. First, a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded entirely by people like you, taking out a subscription to our monthly paper, The Byline Times. And that also plays for our brilliant news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. Get details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now, in Afghanistan, the Taliban are resurgent following Joe Biden's withdrawal of US troops, a decision mirrored by his British allies, thus ending, after nearly 20 years, America's longest war. The invasion was justified in the first place on the grounds that the Taliban was giving protection to al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden, mastermind of the 9-11 attacks in which nearly 3,000 people died. Many thousands more were killed in the subsequent US-led bombing campaign, but the Taliban has not been eliminated, far from it, and as the allies have moved out, They have moved back to reassert their grip on a country which, however slowly and imperfectly, had been working towards democracy and an improvement in women's rights. Chris Alexander, a former Canadian Immigration and Citizenship Minister, has a special insight into all of this. In 2003, he was appointed Canada's first resident ambassador to Afghanistan and served as UN Deputy Special Representative in the country until 2009. He points to the Taliban's support from neighbouring Pakistan, dating back to its creation in the mid-90s, as a key to the organization's long-term survival and argues that it is still acting as a proxy for Islamabad, a charge denied by the government of Imran Khan. Chris gave me his reaction to the renewed fighting in Afghanistan.
1: Well, unfortunately, it's predictable in that the main issue that took us to Afghanistan way back in 2001 hasn't been dealt with. You know, think of those attacks in New York. Think of everything we've heard about al-Qaeda. At the end of the day, al-Qaeda was just another terrorist outfit founded in Pakistan to achieve foreign policy aims that they use these groups to achieve. They know they can't beat India in a conventional war, so they cultivate irregular warfare against India and other foes. And one of their projects for the last 40 years has been essentially to have Afghanistan as a fifth province of Pakistan. And they got there for five years before 9-11 when the Taliban were in charge. They never really gave up that dream. And so we've been fighting the Taliban, rightly, because. It's one of the darkest regimes we've seen in our lifetimes. But we haven't been addressing the root of the problem, which is Pakistan's support for the Taliban as a proxy army, which continues to fight even now after NATO has left and Joe Biden took that very controversial decision to put, to pull out. With Biden, I would have predicted he would pull everyone out because I met him back in 2009 when he was vice president elect and he was very much against the mission even then probably the most anti-afghan mission of any elected politician i had met i have met but under any other leadership i think we might still be there but the issue would still be unresolved because no one has focused yet on what pakistan is doing when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine in 2014. It took people a while to figure out that these were not little green men. They were actually rebadged or debadged Russian soldiers in Crimea and in Donbass. But we acted and we sanctioned Putin and his entourage. We have not done that in the case of Pakistan, even though they have given even more support to the Taliban. And that proxy army is responsible for the death of our compatriots, you know, Canadian soldiers, British soldiers. American soldiers, and, of course, many tens of thousands of Afghans. So we've, we've got to drill down to the real issue here and address it. I think people are starting to see things a bit more clearly. Some good books have been written on this. But in policy terms, we're not there yet.
0: What is Pakistan's strategic aim in seeking to fight this proxy war in Afghanistan, as you would describe it?
1: I'd, I'd reduce it to three parts. First, they had the Taliban there once. They never really gave up on their guys. I mean, think the way intelligence agencies think. When you recruit people, train them, equip them, mentor them, give them everything they need to go into the field, they are your nearest and dearest. You never sell them out. And so when they had to pack up in 2001, it was a dark moment for Pakistani intelligence, but they never gave up on the dream of redeploying them. And when... The U.S., U.K. and others got distracted with Iraq in 2003. They sort of saw the way clear to fighting their way back to power. So that's one. The Taliban are their Joes, and they never gave up on their Joes, as a good intelligence agency never does. Secondly, this is a project Pakistan has had for over 40 years, since the time of Zia, basically to compensate for the loss of East Pakistan, it was as it was then known, which became Bangladesh in 1971. The army suffered a major defeat back then and they knew they needed to do something to win back their prestige and fighting on the Western Front became that strategic objective. They were helped by the Americans in the 80s because it was a common fight against the Soviet occupation. For most of that time, though, they've been doing it on their own and for 20 years they've been doing it against us. The third reason is that this is something people based in the Indus Valley have done for a very long time. It goes back beyond the creation of Pakistan to the British Raj. Think of the wars, the Anglo-Afghan wars that were fought. Think of the raids and interference that took place in the first three decades of the 20th century. Lawrence of Arabia, for crying out loud, was almost certainly involved in some of them when he was based in Wana, Waziristan with the RAF. Under mysterious circumstances. The British Raj saw it as part of their mission in life to interfere in Afghanistan to make sure others didn't dominate it. And of course, the agenda there for the most part was to make sure Russia didn't dominate. So there's been a kind of droit de regard, as the French put it, for those based in Islamabad, before that, Delhi and British India to interfere in Afghanistan. And the rest of the world has never said in sufficiently uh, unambiguous terms, this is not acceptable. Afghanistan is a country with borders. It is sovereign. You cannot interfere through proxies or otherwise. And that's really the message that needs to be driven home today, I think, if we want to see peace in Afghanistan.
0: One strategic aim that you haven't mentioned there is religion. And I'm interested to explore how important you think that is. Obviously, Pakistan is a Muslim country and the taliban are islamist fundamentalists they may well ally with other groups such as islamic state and so on is this in any sense a religious war by proxy
1: it is but it is muslims against muslims i agree with you that the taliban are motivated by religious goals they are programmed in their training to think that afghans are somehow heretics and they have baked into them, this extreme version of Islam, which we've seen in Daesh, in ISIS, and in other groups in recent decades, coming out of essentially the Wahhabi tradition, that is intolerant and extremely militant. But at the same time, the Afghans are proud Muslims, and they find it absurd that the Taliban should attack them in the name of Islam, you know, kill Afghan civilians. When Afghanistan is one of the cradles of Islamic civilization, and arguably came to Islam and has deeper roots in Islam than Pakistan itself. And people are on their roofs and in the streets in Kabul, yelling, shouting together, almost singing Allahu Akbar. That is their message to counter the Taliban, because there are no grounds in their minds, and certainly not in my mind, (laughs) for attacking Afghans on the basis of religion. It's a kind of dialogue of the deaf on that issue, but you're right, it, it is something that motivates the Taliban. I would call it part of their ideology, though, rather than their religious identity.
0: As you might expect, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Pakistan has hit back hard on the comments that you have made on social media. They accuse you of a complete lack of understanding of the issue, as well as an ignorance of facts on the ground.
1: Well, I I was quite pleased to receive that comment because it shows that we're actually getting through to them and we're actually delivering a message that they don't want to hear. I published a report back in March called Ending Pakistan's Proxy War in Afghanistan. There was no reaction from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I have been on social media ever since and reaching out through my own channels to people to drive this agenda forward. No reaction from anyone in official circles in Pakistan. And in fact, I had some fairly direct words for Imran Khan, who is defending, you know, pretending that Pakistan is not involved in this on social media. My message was that he's lying. I have sat in a room with Imran Khan in Toronto when he was raising money before becoming prime minister and heard him defend the Taliban to the rooftops. So I know his duplicity firsthand on this issue, but there was no reaction to that tweet. What they reacted to was one tweet I put forward delivered by a friend who's very reliable in Afghanistan and who has contacts across the country, which included a photograph of about 100 Taliban fighters leaning against the fence erected by Pakistan on the border who had just come into the country to join the fight from Pakistan. And that is the story Pakistanis don't want told. And that is where the foreign office reacted, probably not because they care about their own reputation outside the country, but because the army told them to do so. This is the secret, the dirty secret that Pakistan wants to keep hidden. But unfortunately, it keeps coming out. Thanks to social media, thanks to courageous and brave Afghans, and thanks to a lot of... uh, goodwill that has been built up over decades around the world in all the countries that played a role in trying to put Afghanistan back on a peaceful path. And I just don't think whatever these misguided voices in Pakistan's foreign office say, I don't think the world is going to let Afghanistan drop just as quickly as some in Pakistan think we will.
0: The war was initiated in two thousand and one. After Osama bin Laden masterminded the nine eleven attacks, Britain was involved, of course. And I live not very far, as it happens, from the specialist hospital in Birmingham, where troops are treated for the loss of limbs. I've seen many of those soldiers in my neighbourhood. It's been a involved a tragic loss of life. On the American side, on the British side, and indeed of, of Afghan lives. What do you make of the decision now by Western leaders to withdraw from Afghanistan?
1: It's a mistaken decision, in my view. It would have been fairly low cost for the US and others, including the UK, to stay with a light footprint. And that investment would have protected the achievements of the last 20 years, which are real. The Taliban was gone from power schools had been built afghanistan had advanced now that said i do understand as a former politician and as a citizen that it's not popular to keep troops abroad in our countries these days it seems like a failed effort because there is no peace after 20 years and no politicians Of any stature have explained this issue that I was talking about of the cross border nature of the war, the large scale support of Pakistan for it. But I do think we were getting closer to that day of reckoning with Pakistan, and I think we'll still get to it. It becomes harder with no international military presence on the ground because the Afghans have their backs more to the wall. Now, Joe Biden who is really personally responsible for this decision. I don't think it was the UK or any other ally or anyone else in Washington who pushed for it. He has a particular track record on this. And that goes back to the fact that he's one of those Democrats, few Democrats with Hillary Clinton who voted for the war in Iraq, which was a terrible error, a historic mistake a disaster, a strategic disaster, which cost everyone involved far too much and is still costing Iraq. He kind of overcompensated for his mistake on that front and turned against the war in Afghanistan, the mission in Afghanistan soon after. And I saw that as deputy head of the UN mission when he came as vice president-elect in 2009. He, He wanted to pull our troops out even then, which was quite a radical position. So I'm not surprised. But I think the western level of effort in afghanistan still has yet to find its full position politically and in terms of concrete support the u.s is still using air power on behalf of the afghan army all our countries are still funding the afghan national army we don't want the taliban to win and impose their dark agenda by force that said No one wants to send our troops back there. And I can only explain to Canadian war widows or injured British veterans or someone from Denmark, where I now am, who who lost a family member in Afghanistan, what this mission meant if it is a success, if there is an enduring result and an enduring peace that benefits Afghanistan and the region. To get there, we have to grasp this nettle of. Pakistan's role in the conflict. And it seems complicated. It seems certainly unprecedented. We've never chosen to confront this issue, but it can and must be done. We have imposed sanctions on Vladimir Putin, who leads a much more powerful country with many more nuclear weapons. It should be within our power to do what is necessary to compel Pakistan to drop this disastrous forever war in Afghanistan after so many years. We just need the political will to do it. And we're a bit on the back foot because issues like Brexit and the whole Trump legacy have put the usual players, turned the usual players a bit more inward than usual. And COVID has certainly added to that. We need to turn outward again. Think about our longer term interest and think about bringing peace to a country that hasn't known it in 43 years.
0: Chris Alexander, I'm Adrian Goldberg and you're listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now as well as the impending 20th anniversary of 9-11, we're also coming up to the first anniversary of street protests in Belarus against the government of Alexander Lukashenko, often called Europe's last dictator. Lukashenko does put himself up for election now and again, but as he's won all of them since 1994, there are serious questions as to how free and fair they are. Most observers believe he was well beaten in 2020 by his rival Svetlana Shikoneyshka, but the president clung to power, claiming 80% support in the poll. Yeah, right. The behaviour of his government and its supporters is becoming ever more brutal. Peaceful demonstrations have been met with violence. A Ryanair jet flying above Belarusian airspace was forced to land and hand over a political opponent. An Olympic athlete who complained about her team bosses on social media had to seek police protection in Tokyo. An exiled activist in Ukraine who helped people from Belarus seek refuge was found dead in a park with murder suspected. Journalist Hanna Lyubakova has been forced to flee Belarus for her own safety and has been telling me her story.
2: Well, I remember when I was 14, I think it all started for me. At that age, I became a student of this high school called Belarusian Humanitarian Lyceum. It was a famous, prominent school, and it was shut down. It was closed by Lukashenko, by his regime, by the government. And basically, I think I immediately became mature, immature politically, because I just saw how the regime treated students, youngsters, basically teenagers, who were forced to leave their school, were not allowed to study. And we were protesting outside the building, and we tried to protect it. We tried to defend our rights to study, but we're just not allowed to do so. And that's how we went underground. So we continued studying in this underground school. We were renting apartments and uh, we were attending lectures. In these apartments, and teachers were coming to us, and then police were searching us. And it was really kind of stressful, but at the same time, I felt like a revolutionary in a way because of the whole situation. And since then, I never had this naive approach. I never expected anything from Lukashenko. I just saw who he was, and that became clear to me that that's a dictator that will never change.
0: And things came to a head last summer with an election and with protests on the streets. Just tell me about that time.
2: It was 2020. Lukashenko, he was seeking re-election for his sixth term when the election campaign started in spring. I think we did not really expect what would happen later that summer and that autumn. It was really a boring campaign, but then the coronavirus came and the majority of Belarusians of the population saw how the government treated them. Lukashenko was lying, state media was lying and people got disappointed because Lukashenko for years tried to create an image of uh, someone who takes care of the people And now he kind of began treating them in a very kind of satirical way. He was undermining, he was criticizing the victims of the coronavirus. He was hiding the statistics. And there is this dimension of safety and security that people all of a sudden lost for years, Lukashenko tried to show that, you know, there is no war in Belarus. It's all safe. There is no crime. But with the coronavirus, people saw that their health, their safety, their lives are being undermined by, by the government, by, by Lukashenko. So they stood up, they started kind of organizing this um, campaign to bring some protective equipment to doctors. That's how many people got mobilized. And then new faces appeared in politics. These were uh, Sergei Tichanowski, who who is a prominent blogger, who was covering the coronavirus, who was traveling across the country and talking to people. Then there was this ex-banker, Viktor Babaryka, who was really, really famous, really prominent. And people really admired those new candidates who were not politicians before, but who were able to gather so much support among people. There were eventually three candidates. They were prevented from running in the elections. And people got so angry. And then three women appeared. These were the wives and a political aide of one of the potential candidates. So those three women were able to mobilize the society. They stood instead of those potential candidates. And it became such a powerful image. They really appealed to the majority of Belarusians. And they were traveling across the country. And I remember I was also covering, as a journalist, those rallies. And I saw how the society changed, how people evolved not only because of the coronavirus, but because of the whole situation with the pandemic, because they were also dissatisfied for so many reasons. They were tired of Lukashenko. They wanted the economy to improve and kind of the situation to improve. And before the elections, it became clear to me that there is no way back. The society has just said no to Lukashenko.
0: It's a really interesting story, Hannah, in that you were radicalised as a teenager because of the experiences at your school and the closure of your school, but it took coronavirus to radicalise the rest of the nation and to feel that they needed to speak out.
2: Um, Well, I'm not sure if radicalization is a good word for this. Well, I would say that for years Lukashenko tried to show himself as uh, he, he's a populist. And people haven't seen what's happening across the world and basically in the region. Lukashenko also used Ukraine and the events in Ukraine to show that you know there is um, stability in Belarus and the situation is very stable, nothing bad is happening. And people for years were scared of changes because of that, because of everything that they've seen and how propaganda has shown it to them. Many of them just remained quiet because of that. But then the situation with the coronavirus, and even before, a few years ago, there, there were massive protests already in Belarus against the this tax on the unemployed that Lukashenko tried to impose. A
0: tax, a tax on the unemployed?
2: Uh, Yes. So there was this brilliant idea. I think uh, it originated in the Soviet Union and Lukashenko tries to restore everything that the Soviet Union had. So the government needed money and they came up with this idea to impose taxes on people who are unemployed, who don't have jobs. It means, you know, freelancers and so many kind of Professions that were not officially registered became non-existent in a way for the government. And because it touched on so many people, like both people fought unfairness, there was this massive wave of protests across the country. It was 2017. And I remember that I think it was the first kind of movement that really gathered the population it was not about students it was not about pensioners it was not about motorists it was just about everybody because so many people felt affected so they were protesting and that was the first moment when the first time i think ever in the modern history of belarus when lukashenko said okay i'm giving up there would be no tax you guys won so people felt motivated because of that people felt encouraged And I think it was kind of the first step that led to the movement that we've seen in August, when people gathered, mobilised again, when people self-organised, because of the pandemic, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, And let me just stress, of course, when I use the word radicalised, I don't mean that in any inappropriate context, but in the context of the country in which you were raised, to speak out against Lukashenko was clearly seen as some kind of radical act. What's fascinating as well about what you've said is that when new faces, if you like, new opposition faces appeared on the scene, Lukashenko would not allow the men to stand as opponents, but he allowed their wives to stand as opponents. Was that just because they were women, they would be easier to defeat, that they in some way would not be seen as, as credible opposition to him?
2: That's correct. That was not the first time when he allowed a woman to be registered and run against him in the elections. In 2015, there was another female candidate, alternative, independent candidate, that he allowed to become his rival. So... We have 2020, we have Svetlana Tichanowska who decided to run instead of her husband who was jailed and could not apply for being registered as a candidate in the elections. And I remember that moment when she was allowed in this commission and she was asked why she wants to run in the, uh, you know, for president. And she said that ironically, like with an irony that, um, you know what, I always wanted to be the president. And I think that that was that moment when I understood that, you know what, this is going to be really interesting. And it turned out to be true. So she was much more powerful and much stronger than Lukashenko even imagined. He made a huge mistake by, by registering her, by allowing her to run, because she was able to not only to unify the opposition, the movement, she was able to unite with the two other women, right, who represented those men who were banned from running in the elections. But those three women together were able to unite the whole society. Why? Because firstly, that they were completely different to what Lukashenko is. They were empathetic. They were listening to people. They were kind. They were not proposing anything that would divide people. They were saying that they are running... Svetlana Tikhanovskaya is running to bring justice and to bring a new free and fair election. So this is her goal. People were trusting her because of that. She's not kind of this traditional, I would say, politician, that she wants people to be respected, to be heard, and to to give them rights to elect to choose freely. And yeah, so that actually became the revolution. So. So many, many, many people gathered, dozens of thousands of people gathered before the elections, and people saw that they are the majority. And perhaps for the first time, they were really confident about that because before, Lukashenko was always able to convince people that there are not so many of them, that people in Minsk in the capital protest, but people outside the capital in small towns are for Lukashenko. That was kind of the myth that the official propaganda tried to create and was able basically to create you know, throughout all these years. But no longer in 2020, that was no, no longer the case. And that was really kind of when you see that the, you are the majority, it's very difficult to convince the people otherwise. And when on August 9th, They've seen the official results, 80% for Lukashenko. They did not believe for any second that it was true.
1: Mass protests in Minsk triggered by the news of a secret inauguration by Belarus's embattled leader. The move by Alexander Lukashenko has been condemned by the West.
2: So people felt deceived and people wanted to defend their votes and they came out to the streets and they wanted to kind of show to Lukashenko to the regime that you know what there are so many of us and people were all over the country there were dozens of places cities towns villages where people were protesting it it was incredible but how Lukashenko reacted so he attacked people with rubber bullets with stun grenades people were beaten people were tortured in the first 3 nights after the elections There were 7,000 people who have been arrested. That's an immense number for a country of 9.5 million. And people were tortured in prison. There was no internet. But when the whole country learned, got to know what happened to so many of them, to so many people who were protesting, people were just kind of were not able to agree with that. And people were not able to stay silent. And that's why after the whole torture, the whole... There were even women and men were raped in prisons. So people came out to the streets to protest against the regime, against Lukashenko. And what's, I think, incredible was that these were absolutely peaceful protests.
0: Forgive my pronunciation, but uh, Shikanoishka claimed that she had got 60% of the vote. In the first round of the election, the European Union, amongst others, has said that it refuses to acknowledge the result. But nevertheless, Lukashenko is still ruling your country, ruling through fear and brutality.
2: Well, that's exactly the case. Western countries did not recognize the election results. Not only Lukashenko is illegitimate, he is, I think, now illegal because he always rigged the elections. But now I think the scale of this falsification became clear to everyone and the elections were not recognized. So what I think is disappointing now to me is that since Lukashenko was not recognized, I've recognized, what are we doing next as an international community? What is our reaction? For months, sanctions were very light, not really painful for the regime. And that's one of the very few tools that the West can impose in how the West can have influence over Lukashenko. So there were not, I would say, substantial reaction in the first months. And that's why Lukashenko felt more confident. And sanctions, sectoral sanctions, economic sanctions, were only imposed after the Iran airplane was diverted, was forced down in Minsk, the plane that um, had many European fa- passengers. So that was the first moment. But before that, you know, Belarusians obviously felt so much solidarity and so much support, but they also felt alone in their fight. So the more kind of substantial reaction, the more pressure on the regime, the, easier it would be for the people to force the regime to negotiate with them. That's, I think, the goal. The goal is to have a new election. So that's something that the West should remember. Our top focus at this hour, Belarus is facing international condemnation because of a rogue move by its president. On Sunday, President Alexander Lukashenko forced a Ryanair passenger fly to land in the capital, Minsk, by sending a fighter jet to intercept the plane traveling through the country's airspace. Belarusian authorities had flagged what turned out to be a false bomb alert to force the plane to land. And on landing, the 26-year-old opposition journalist who was on board the Greece-bound flight was then detained, along with his girlfriend.
0: That was an incredible aspect of this story, wasn't it? Scarcely believable, a Ryanair jet forced to divert to Belarus. This was under the very close supervision of a MiG fighter, of a war plane. And that was because Mr. Lukashenko wanted Roman Protasevich, who was a, a well-known blogger in Belarus, who I think had been exiled in Poland, returned to the country. Lukashenko is, is absolutely terrified of journalists, of dissidents, of any kind of critical voice, it seems, within the country.
2: What happened in May with the Ryanair plane, it's in a way not surprising, really, because that's something that should have been expected. Lukashenko's only choice, Lukashenko's only way right now is to escalate. Um, he has been cornered. Um, he feels really um, under pressure because uh, while we don't really see a protest right now because people are scared, because the level of repression is just incredible, is unprecedented, there is still discontent. It's very hard for people to forget what happened in August and to forget what happened after August throughout all these months. I think the point of no return has been passed and people just cannot accept Lukashenko anymore. And that's what Lukashenko feels. He understands that, you know, for them, he's he's gone, despite him still controlling the army and security forces. So he feels so much under pressure that he um, kind of had to show how powerful he is by forcing down the plane. At the same time, he has actually shown how his weakness because a man who is a kind of leader who is uh, confident about his position wouldn't do so. And what happened with this Belarusian athlete, Kristina Timanowska, is another example of his weakness
1: Belarusian Olympic sprinter Kristina Timonovskaya
2: had yet to compete in her next event in Tokyo when she posted this plea online, alleging her national team was trying to force her to return home where she fears she'll be jailed. What she did, she only criticized her coaches, the national delegation, the national team for their negligence. She was forced to run this uh, 400 meter distance, which is not something she usually does. And she kind of published a short comment on Instagram about that. And she said that, you know, that sports officials in Belarus cannot do their job. The regime got so frustrated, got so angry because of that, because of her being vocal. And now in Belarus, everything that is critical towards the government or departments related to the system, to the regime, is being considered as treason. So she did not say anything about Lukashenko. She did not say anything about the government, but she got repressed. Immediately, her coaches came, told her to pack and come back to Belarus because she cannot represent the country anymore. And that just show, shows us how scared they are despite them you know, being considered perhaps by many, is strong and, you know, still in power.
0: The suppression of media voices that might be critical, the suppression of political voices that might be critical goes on pace every day without attracting international headlines.
2: I think the world, the West, just got used to the situation, got used to repressions in Belarus. It doesn't mean that we are used to those. Since August, there have been more than 500 cases of arrests of journalists. Most prominent bloggers, most critical bloggers are now in prison. Journalists were shot with rubber bullets. I had to run from stun grenades myself. I had to run so much that I was joking that now, I now feel like an athlete myself um, in August. So, the situ- I mean, the situation with media freedom has never been great there was never media freedom in belarus i was always worried about my safety about my freedom i knew that i could be detained at any moment when i was in belarus but i think what i saw in august a real war zone kind of real war actually was uh, unleashed was started against us journalists in belarus and lukashenko Before, I think, he kind of tolerated us in a way. I mean, we never felt welcomed as independent journalists. But what I feel after August is that he just wants us to be eliminated as a profession, I think, in the country. A Belarusian activist was found hanged in a park near his home in Kiev early on Tuesday. Ukrainian police have launched a murder investigation. Vitali Shishov led a Kiev-based organisation that helps Belarusians fleeing persecution.
0: There's a big geopolitical fact at play here, isn't there? Which is the support of Belarus, the support of Lukashenko, by Putin, by Russia. This is what underpins Lukashenko's authority. And he's spoken in the last few days of being willing to deploy Russian troops to uphold his authority in the country.
2: I think if not for Putin, Lukashenko might not have been in power. What is happening now is that he obviously tries to show that he has support of of Putin. And Putin is interested in the status quo, but it doesn't mean that Putin wants Lukashenko to stay in power. He's not a big fan of Alexander Lukashenko. Putin is really scared of his neighbor another dictator, another authoritarian leader being deposed by a street protest because that's something that Russians might might take as an example. So he wants the status quo and he does everything to protect it. The support that Lukashenko received is not huge, but it's been just enough to sort of stay in power and continue repressing people.
0: What can we do as ordinary people in the West? What can politicians do in the West to help support the people in Belarus to enjoy the kind of freedoms that we enjoy and take for granted?
2: There are so many things that might be done. I mentioned pressure and pressure is really important to force, to end violence, to release political prisoners, to force Lukashenko and the government to agree to negotiations. Uh, support, assistance is really needed. Now what's happening? Lukashenko is destroying the ecosystem of civil society. He is destroying media. Many of my colleagues, many of media outlets have been banned, have been literally destroyed. And it's very important to preserve infrastructure. The ecosystem of media, because once independent media is destroyed, then foreign narratives, Russian narratives, can can be spread much more easily in Belarus. Yeah, so much more assistance is needed. It's money, basically, financial support should be delivered to Belarus inside the country to those people on the ground. And then, kind of, the next pillar of it is justice. Um, We are talking about universal jurisdiction. We are talking about efforts of the UN, uh, Human Rights Council and other bodies, you know, this uh, international accountability platform for Belarus that the UK supported. All of these initiatives are very important to collect evidence to preserve this evidence, uh, Evidence, analyze it. It helps for sanctions, but it also helps for the future, future investigations, future tribunal over those who committed crimes in Belarus. So all of these steps are really important and all of these steps should be taken, imposed together so that there is kind of more result. For ordinary citizens, I think it's really important to be vocal, to kind of stay Focused and spread information about the situation in Belarus, because well media and politicians tend to forget about countries where sort of nothing is happening because since there are no protests on the street on the streets, people think that you know the revolution is over, which is not true so I would say that, you know, paying attention and being kind of focused on, the, on Belarus is really important. And what you mentioned about democracy, I think people in Belarus have shown that they are ready for democracy. They are already dem- democratic. They protest peacefully, which is, I think, the sign of democracy, right? Because how would you pursue your democratic rights in, in a country apart from going and voting? Well, peaceful protests then. I would kind of really follow the situation in Belarus because it is developing. It is very interesting, and people have shown that they are resilient and that they are are really resourceful.
0: Hannah Lyubakova. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times podcast. You can read more on these big stories at bylinetimes.com. Subscriptions to our monthly paper, The Byline Times, pay for that cracking news-breaking website, as well as this podcast. So please subscribe if you can. More details at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.